Christen. live broadcast. I think we're going to make it there. Had a faulty camera or something going on. For those that just joined us, we just finished our singing our hymns and thought I would read one. Uh, the first song that we sang this morning. Thought I'd just read that for those who are watching. Uh, we don't record our hymns anymore uh, for time's sake and also it makes it easier for me to edit and record and everything for putting things on sermon audio and YouTube and copyright things on YouTube and stuff like that. So it's we just cut that cut that out in our recording. So, but anyway, uh, I want to read the song, uh, the hymn that we sung this morning. It was five thirty in the Gadsby Hymn Book, uh, written by William Gadsby. Kind of going to go along with what we're going to be talking about this morning, if the Lord wills. The song says, Election is a truth divine, as absolute as free. Works ne'er can make the blessing mine. Tis God's own wise decree. Before Jehovah built the skies, or earth, or seas, or sun, He chose a people for His praise and gave them to His Son. Eternal was the choice of God, a sovereign act indeed. And Jesus the incarnate word, although I don't agree with that word incarnate, and Jesus the incarnate word secures the chosen seed. Not that I don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, he did, but that word is not a good word to use. He loved and chose because he would, nor did his choice depend on sinner's work or bad or good, but on his sovereign mind. Nor law, nor death, nor hell, nor sin can alter his decree. The elect eternal life shall win and all God's glory see. His counsel stands forever sure, immortal and divine. His justice, mercy, truth, and power unite to make it mine. A lot of times we don't realize uh, how rich some of these hymns really are in the truth. Um... This speaks very clearly of God's sovereign choice, not only in election, but it also speaks of His divine sovereignty in the fact that uh, whatever God decrees is going to take place and nothing changes that. Nothing can make it happen. And so we're going to maybe look at that today. Uh, if everyone would, turn to Ecclesiastes. <coughs> chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, <coughs> we'll start reading in verse 1, and then I'm going to read down to verse 14, and... Uh, some thoughts that I had, especially on verse 14. It says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, 
A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in. Now notice he says there that he has noticed the travail which God hath given for us to be exercised in. You notice we just read all those things, all those different things. There's a time for everything. To be born, to die, to plant, to pluck, time to kill, time to heal, time to break down, time to build up. What is it, what is that in summary? Whatever we're talking about. Everything that goes on. Everything that's happened. Everything that has taken place from the beginning of time until now, all the goings on. Seasons come in, seasons go out. Daylight, darkness, good, evil. Everything that happens, every, every person, every, everything that's been created on earth, whether it be, uh, whether it be with the breath of life in it, or whether it be a plant, whether it be an inanimate object like a rock or a stone, <coughs> everything that has been, that is, that ever will be, God has purposed it. God has decreed it. And God has set the travail of life upon it, and He exercises His creation in that travail. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. We experience our birth. We experience our life. We will experience our death. And all of that is by God's hand and God's timing. Nobody speeds it up. Most of you kids, whenever you were born, your mom had to be induced because she can't go in, wasn't able to go into labor, so she had to be induced. Sometimes it didn't come at the right day, on the right time that the doctors thought she was going to come, all that stuff. Listen, you came exactly when God determined that you would come. You were born on the day that you were born. Instead of you being an April Fool's, you were a day after April Fool's. Right? All of life, everything is summed up here. And the writer here says that he knows that God has given this to the sons of men to be exercised in. Why do we have to go through the things that we go through? Why do we have to experience the things that we experience? Why do we have everything that happens to us happen to us the way that it happens to us? Because God has designed it all that way. Not one molecule, not one atom, not one cell, not one thought ever takes place that God has not ordained for that to take place. He goes on to say, He hath made everything beautiful in His time. See, we hate to talk about death. We hate to talk about harvest time, plucking things up. We we hate to talk about killings, things being uh, broken down. We'll just go through the list here. All the <clears throat> negative things. Mourning. Having to cast away. Refrain. 
It says, a time to embrace, hug, time to not hug. Stay away. There's going to be times where we love each other. There's going to be times that we're not like each other. We don't fight often. The kids probably say that's not true. But me and my wife, we do have arguments once in a while. Those are ordained of God. He has chosen those things and given those things and exercises us in those things for His purpose. He says, He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has set the world in their heart so that man can find, that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Now, that's a huge statement and, a, and one that really a whole sermon can be preached about that. The fact that God has put the world in the hearts of Adam and that in Adam we cannot find or know or understand the things that God has set up from the beginning. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he, because they're spiritually discerned. So we cannot understand those things, and God has made it that way. God has made man unable to do spiritual things so that his people, the elect of God, who are in also Adam, who came in Adam, born of Adam, born natural of the earth, earthy, was born without the ability to do spiritual things so that we would be dependent upon, so that we, in God's time of giving faith, would look to Christ and believe upon Christ and give all glory and honor to Christ for saving us from who we are. From saving us from our sin and from the nature that is Adam who cannot keep God's law, Christ came and was the keeper of the law for us. And God did that. He planned that. He purposed that. And He has made us in this fashion to experience these things for God's glory. He says, I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in this in his life. There's no good in any of us. He says, verse 13, And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. I particularly like that verse. It's a wonderful comforting verse. A lot of people are so legalistic that they say, boy, you can't enjoy nothing. If you're not, you need to wake up and if you have a job, you need to go to your job, do your responsibility, provide for your family, and whenever you come home, you need to spend every waking hour on your knees praying, on your face before the Bible and studying the Word of God, and uh, you need to be out doing something productive for the kingdom of God, building the kingdom of God. And how dare you enjoy a football game, enjoy a baseball game, enjoy fishing, enjoy hunting. That's just wasted time. They were just frivolous things of life. But here, we see Solomon, who was the wisest man, the Bible says. He says that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor it is the gift of God. 
I can enjoy the gifts that God has given us through the ability to labor for those things. Why do we have vehicles? We like to have vehicles. I like to, I'd like to have a nice hot rod. I love hot rods. I'd like to have a nice hot rod. And if I labor for that and the Lord wills, hey, I'd like to enjoy that. Okay? Fishing. We love to fish. <clears throat> Don't get to do it very often, but we like to fish. We can enjoy the things that God has given us. That is a gift of God. Those things are gifts of God. Now, can anything that is a gift of God be turned and be abused? Absolutely. Everything in moderation. Everything that God has given for us to enjoy, we can turn around and abuse that. But brethren, even that is a time and a season that God has declared. That's not to say go out and do it. Okay, I'm not encouraging you to go sin or do anything like that, but I'm just saying that even the times whenever we do those type of things, it doesn't escape God. And then here we are in verse 14, and this is really what I'd like to look at this morning. It says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, now it's great to see that right there because we've just seen from verse 1 down to verse 13 that everything that is happening in this world, in all of its aspects, in all of its activity that's going on, we see here the Bible is giving clear, I mean perfect description that all these things are the work of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, what is God doing? Well, God is bringing forth the time to be born, the time to die, the time to plant, the time to pick up. What is God doing? He is causing the travail and exercising men in it. What is God doing? He has made everything beautiful in its time. What is God doing? He has set the world in the hearts of man so that they cannot know what God has done, the beginning from the end. Or the end from the beginning. What is God doing? God is doing, giving gifts to His people to enjoy. He says, I know that whatsoever, whatsoever God doeth, whether it be positive in our viewpoint or negative in our viewpoint, whether it look like it's good or whether it looks like it's evil, which God can't do anything evil, although some of the things that God can do for us is evil. God can kill whoever He wants because there is a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, and a time to heal, and He is the one who doeth it. God can kill, but we can't. Why? Because He is the lawgiver, and He told us, Thou shalt not kill. But God is not under that law. God's not under law. No one controls God. I'm going to talk about that. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. <clears throat> it says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, everything that God does is because He has purposed it. He has planned it. He has declared it. He says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, doeth it shall be forever. 
Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before Him. Now, as I look at this verse, I think that of a couple of things, actually, whenever I was looking at this. Number one, I definitely see God's uh, sovereign purpose here. God's sovereign purpose. I know that whatsoever God doeth, His sovereign purpose is in everything that He has done, is doing, will do. Everything that God has purposed before the foundation of the world are His works. His works are His will and purpose being brought out by providence, being brought to life in this time, everything that God purposed before time. And those are His works. And all the works that God has purposed before time, everything that God foreknew, and He foreknew because He purposed it, Okay, He didn't foreknow it because he seen it in the future. He foreknew it because it was his plan to begin with. He foreknew these things. He predestinated these things and decreed that they would be so. And then it says here that he doeth it. He's the one that's bringing it about. We call that providence. By the providence of God, these things are coming about. And I would say by the providence of God, everything comes about, whether it be to the positive in our viewpoint or to the negative in our viewpoint, whether it be righteous works or whether it be evil works, everything, there is a time and a season for both in God's purpose and if there is a time and a season for all things, positive and negative, in God's purpose, then both positive and negative was purposed by God. Therefore, it is a work of God. And if it is a work of God, He is the one that doeth it. He brings it about. Is He the one who sins? No, God cannot sin. Who's the sinners? We are. How does God bring about the acts of sin to be done for His purpose? Through people. And how does He do that? Well, He withhold, withholds grace. Some people say, well, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Well, I hope that you stay around for a little bit because I hope to show that God has revealed that He does that. You say, well, I don't believe that. How can God, how can God desire want, will, predestine, do all that without God being the author of sin. I don't see any problem within any of that. The Bible never says that God is not the author of sin, and the Bible never says that God cannot actively predestinate, decree, declare, and withhold grace from people so that they, from their own lust and sin, brings that sin about for God's purpose. And I will always go back to Acts where the Bible says that God in his determinate counsel predestinated that wicked man with their wicked hands in their wicked activity 
will take and crucify Christ. I mean, the very act was predestinated. How he was crucified was predestinated. The floggings on his back, the pulling of his beard, the spitting on him, the ridicule, the blasphemy, the mocking, the scorning, all the shame revolved around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All those actions was predetermined before the foundation of the world. They were prophesied in the Old Testament to a T, and then they were brought about in Acts by those men. Why? Because God predestinated that to happen exactly the way that it happened. That's not really my point. My point is that it's God's sovereign purpose, and His sovereign purpose, nothing can be put to it, and nothing can be taken away with it. That was the thing that really struck uh, uh, to my mind whenever I was looking at this is the fact that God's purpose nothing can be put to it and nothing can be taken away we so often think that if we do this this will help with God's plan or if we don't do this then we're hindering God's plan I heard somebody just this last week or maybe it was the week before last or something like that on uh on a, 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 um, the radio, uh, scanning through radio stations while I was driving for work. And, uh, of course, down on the one end of the dial is where all the quote-unquote Christian radio stations are, all the crazy preachers that preach on it. <clears throat> and they were talking about getting busy and building the kingdom of God. we got to get out there and build the kingdom of God. If we don't get out there and start doing this and doing that, then... The kingdom of God is not going to be built. Well, brethren, that's false. Number one, we are not building the kingdom of God. Christ is. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the one who is building the kingdom. It's his kingdom and he's the king of the kingdom. And the king in the kingdom rules and reigns over all those who are in the kingdom. And his kingdom reaches as far as the king wants it to reach. The kingdom is being built by the king, not by us. And so I see here that there is nothing that can be put to it and nothing that can be taken away with it. Now look, if you would, with me at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Look at verse 18. It says, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. So God knows everything that He is going to do from the beginning of the world. So there is where His purpose, His predestination, His foreknowledge, His decrees, that is where all that comes from, is God knowing what He is going to do, His works from the beginning. I know that this is what I'm going to do. And if God says that's what I'm going to do, nothing can be put to it and nothing can be taken away with it. God's plan is to get messed up. Whenever God said, hey, I'm going to create man, and I'm going to create man in my image, just like me. And that man is going to have spiritual life, and that man is going to be perfect and holy and righteous and just, and that man is going to be just like me, but because I want him to love me for real, I'm going to give him free will. 
And so I put this tree over here, and I'm going to give him a choice. You can either eat of that tree or don't eat of that tree. But if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And whenever I say die, I mean you're going to spiritually die. And you're going to lose that spirit life. And then you're just going to become nothing spiritual. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Did Adam eat of the tree? Yes. Did God put the tree there? Yes. Did God intend for the tree to be there and for Adam to eat of the tree? Yes, he did. Did God give him a choice? No, he didn't. Never did give Adam a choice. He told Adam exactly what he was going to do. He said, eat of any tree in this garden, but don't eat of that tree. The day that thou eatest thereof, in the day that thou eatest thereof, not if you eat, he said, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Why did God say in the day instead of if you eat? Because God had already purposed that the reason for the tree was to give Adam a law which Adam could not keep so that Adam would sin, and or excuse me, would transgress the law and therefore sin and death would enter into the world. Romans chapter 5 tells us the law entered that the offense might abound. God give that law, give that tree, and put man in that garden for the purpose of sin coming into the world and death by sin, because through Christ Jesus, sin and death would be conquered, his people would be redeemed, Christ would get glory in all of redemption, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness would be on full display, but so would his wrath, his hatred, uh, his condemnation. All the attributes of God are fully in display in the work of Christ on the cross, and sin and death had to enter into it. And so nobody put to it. Adam didn't change God's plan. It wasn't nothing was put to it, and nothing was taken away from it. God didn't have to drop back Okay? And scramble. Okay? God didn't have to go to plan B. He didn't have to make an audible. Okay? At the line of scrimmage. He declared that's what was going to take place. Why? Because known unto God are all His works. Nothing, nothing comes in time that takes God by surprise and then all of a sudden God has to change anything. Because God knows it all. And even if God did look down the corridor of time, as we've talked about many times before, if God did just look down and see what would happen, and then declare everything according to what He happened, then God didn't make the purpose and plan. He just saw the future. What what the fate happened? What fate happened in the future? And then said, "Okay, well, I'm good with that." See, that's fatalism. The people that claim that we are fatalists are actually the ones who are believing in faith. They believe that just out of sheer men's will, chaotic will, who can choose or choose otherwise, they might be determined to do this, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, go over this way and do this, and then all of a sudden, now God has to alter His plan to make it fit. That is fatalism. Fatalism is just chaotic. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and there is no purpose in it, there is no order to it. Everything that God has purposed is in order. 
It's happening exactly the way that God is ordering it to happen. That's the difference between what we believe, God's predestination, and fatalism. Fatalism, if you hear people, if people say that you're a fatalist because you believe in predestination, you need to just take, say right back, no, actually you're the fatalist. You're the fatalist. You're the one who believes that everything happens according to their own will and all that stuff all of a sudden is going to end at some point and however it ends, it's going to end that way. That's fatalism. Just let fate decide. Just let, let the course of humanity run out and that's what's going to happen. But see, everything's coming down to a purpose. God purposes all things. Everything is done orderly. The Bible does say, it doesn't say God is not the author of sin, but it does say God is not the author of confusion. You say, well, what about all this confusion? What about our country? This country is in a lot of confusion right now. Everything's in an uproar. Everybody's hating both sides of the aisle. Got everybody stirred up, whether it's with racism, whether it's with transgender, transgenderism, lesbianism, uh, gayism, whatever the ism. Right wing, left wing, middle wing, whatever it is. This country is in a chaotic mess, it seems like. But guess what? To everything, there's a season. And God has a purpose for it. And although it's chaotic in our mind, it is not chaotic in the mind of God because God has everything in order. Nothing can be put to it and nothing can be taken away. The chaos in the United States is not taken away from God's purpose. We think it is because we think that we are a nation of God. We think so because we think that this country has always been a godly nation. A Christian nation. Brethren, it is not. If they would, they would be believing the gospel. They'd be, be, be following the gospel, but they don't. They never have. Now, it's definitely been more moralistic. It's definitely been more uh, focused on God things, biblical things. But God knows all of His works. Look at Psalms 33, 11. Bible says, I'm sorry, verse 10. <clears throat> the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. The counsel of the heathen, what is that? The suggestions, the advice. says, God bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. What is this saying? Let me summarize it. What it means. It means everything that men think they're trying to tell God on the way he ought to do things, he brings to naught. He says, I, I, you don't change my mind. You don't put to it and you don't take away from it. It's my purpose. My purpose is going to stand whether you like it or whether you don't like it. My purpose is going to stand. It's going to be completed. It's going to be brought out. It's going to be fulfilled. And he says here, he maketh the devices of the people in none effect. People think they're going to rule out God? No. Every device that men thinks that they're going to do to either become God, be like God, 
or to destroy God are all going to be taken from are going to be taken down and destroyed. The Bible says that no weapon formed against him and therefore against us shall prosper. There is nothing that can take down God. We've seen it all throughout history. The Tower of Babel, they tried to build the Tower of Babel so they could get up and become like God. God destroyed it. Scrambled everybody's speech. Nobody could communicate with each other. They just had to abandon the efforts. Couldn't do nothing because nobody could understand each other. People became wicked upon the earth. What did God do? Sent a flood. Killed everybody. Except for the ones that he elected to save. Killed them all. Whenever Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole city began filled with sexual deviation. What did God do? Rain down fire and brimstone. Killed everybody in there. Except for the elect that he had chosen to save. I mean, you just go through and you see through the Bible over and over and over and over these things. Every time that Israel began to worship other idols, what did he do? He put them into captivity. You look in the New Testament, you see how Israel had abandoned God. How the Jews, the Jewish religion, had become something completely different than what God had originally set up for them in in the Old Covenant. But yet, what did God do? God destroyed them in AD 70. Completely destroyed it. Destroyed them, the temple, except for who? The ones that God had elected. The righteous of God, He had already warned and told them to flee to other countries, to other places, because that destruction was that He was going to come back and destroy Jerusalem. And He did. Completely destroyed it. And guess what? It hasn't been back together ever since. Now, what's here today, that's not what that's not what it was. They don't have their temple. Everybody's worried about the Israel temple getting rebuilt. Man, we can't wait to do that because if that temple gets rebuilt and they start doing those sacrifices again, then Jesus is coming back soon, brethren. It's not going to happen. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen because God has said, I have left this desolate Jesus proclaimed, I'm going to tear it down, I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to leave it desolate, and nobody is going to change, nobody's going to put to it, and nobody's going to take away from it. He has destroyed the whole mess. The only thing that's left is unbelieving Jews trying to be something that they really aren't. It says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to not. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord, though, on the other hand, see, the counsel of the heathen are brought to not. It doesn't mean anything. It has no weight. It has no bearing. It is, it is of no value. It can't accomplish anything. But it says, But the counsel of the Lord, it standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations... I've preached on this before. Preached a couple of messages on um, uh, God's predestination and uh, well, I won't get off in all that. Don't have time for that. He says here, 
The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. That means what God has decided. God's determinate counsel. That's the only thing that stands forever. So if it stands forever, then nothing can be put to it. Or taken away from it. Look, if you would, at Isaiah 46. These ought to be fairly familiar verses to you. Isaiah 46, and look with me at verse 9. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. He's already declared all things. The end from the beginning. So from the beginning to the end and everything in the middle, the things that have not been yet done, is declared. And he says, my counsel shall stand. Why? Because his counsel standeth forever. His counsel cannot be broken. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. There, brethren, is exactly what I was saying a minute ago. God has purposed it and by providence brings it about. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. Does he say, I have purposed it, but I'm just going to let the world go and let fate, let fate go and see where it takes us. Does he say, I have purposed it and I'm going to set it on its path and I'm going to put it on its way, direct it in the direction it should go, and then by their free will, if they happen to go get out of bounds, I'm going to, I'm going to knock them back into play. Oh, i got to get, make some correction there. No, that's not how he does it. He says, my counsel shall stand, right? He, should, he says, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. God is sovereignly controlling all things to bring all things to pass exactly as he has determined it. As he has purposed it. Look if you would at Numbers 23. <coughs> Numbers 23. Verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said... And shall he not do it? And hath he spoken? And shall he not make it good? Listen, if God has said he's going to do something, it's going to get done because number one, God does not lie. Cannot lie. Number two, God's going to do it because he's going to be the one that sees it to come to pass. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to make sure it's get done. As I have purposed it, I will bring it to pass. Now think about this, brethren. God is the Almighty. That means he's omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? What does take the two words? Omni means all. Potent 
Potent means powerful, right? We get our word potent. Man, that's potent. What does that mean? Strong. When we speak in scientific terms, it has potential. It means it has energy. It has power. Potential is power. He has all power. So if God has all power, we also know that God is all wisdom. He knows all things. He's the most wise. God is wise. If He has all power and He has all wisdom, and the Bible says He's omniscient, He knows all things. So He's not just wise, He knows everything. That if He's all powerful, all wise, nothing can stop Him and he knows everything, then who not be the best person to take counsel from? See, his counsel is going to stand because his counsel is the best counsel. He's the best person to carry it out because he's the one that has all power. If he leaves it in the hands of man to build his kingdom, guess what? They don't have all power. They don't have all wisdom. They don't have all knowledge. Therefore, it cannot be guaranteed that it will get to its proper end because man cannot be perfect. Man fails. Man is fallible. But, but God, He will make sure it happens. He says He's going to make sure it happens because He does not lie. Everything He has spoken, He's going to make sure that it's done. Brethren, listen, He is the I Am. The Bible says that His name is I Am. I am self-existent. I am the one who, uh, who, who, uh, uh, who is influenced by me and me alone. Nothing outside of me influences me or causes me to do anything. <clears throat> I can do what I want. Nothing can stay in my hand. Look at Isaiah 40. Verse 13. It says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? Now there, there we go. Another sermon, whole day of sermon can be preached on that. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Men think they can direct the Spirit of the Lord, bring the Spirit down. They can call the Spirit down. They can pray the Spirit down. They can sing the Spirit in. We're going to lead you into worship. Hogwash. Nobody can lead anybody into worship except the Holy Spirit. We're going to prepare everybody for worship. The worship leaders are here to bring everybody into the presence of God. The only one that can bring anybody into the presence of God is the mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. Whenever men stand in the place of Christ and say, we're the ones who have to preach so that someone can be saved, they're putting themselves in the place of Christ. Whenever someone says, we're the ones who have to sing and get everybody into the Spirit and bring them into the worship of God, they put themselves in the place of God Himself, who is the only one who can bring man's heart to worship Him. 
Whenever someone says that we are the ones bringing you into worship, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. You're denying the work of the Holy Spirit and your whole entire effort to worship the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit only gives credence to Christ. See what a crazy religious world we live in? We live in a religious world who is antithetical to all the gospel. People think that they can take the place of Christ. They think that they can be as God. They think that they can do the things. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Nobody. The only one that directs the Spirit of the Lord is the one from whom the Spirit comes from, and that's Christ. It's Christ's Spirit. He does everything that God tells Him to do. Why? Because He is the Spirit of God. He only does what God does. The only reason Jesus did what Jesus did is because He's God. He does what God does. God does His thing. God is counseled by no one, but does what He has counseled Himself to do. And God has counseled the Son of God, the Spirit of God, to do what He has determined to do. Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. He says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counsel, hath taught Him? Everybody thinks that they can teach God something, that they can enlighten God on something. With whom took He counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him in the path of judgment, and taught Him knowledge, and showed Him the way of understanding? Now, brethren, all this is rhetorical questions. It's all sarcasm. It's written to be sarcastic. It's written to be... Answered by the plain and simple, nobody, nobody has ever done that. God has not even entertained the thought to listen to somebody else's counsel. So how in the world could anything be put to God or taken away from God's plan? How in the world can a preacher or a church or a society or a nation or a world or a government or a principality and power like Satan do anything to take away your food too. None of them can. They all are subservient. When you are God, the fact that you are God means that you can do anything. And everybody else who you created was created by you for you and is controlled by you and is accountable to you. And whenever I say accountable, that doesn't mean responsible. Whenever I say accountable, that means that God is going to hold them accountable however God deems to hold them accountable. The reprobate who God never intended to save whenever they stand before God will stand accountable before God in God's justice. Not in our weak-minded justice, as the carnal mind wants to uh, proclaim it. But in God's justice, they're going to be held accountable. Not that they had responsibility. They're going to be held accountable for what they are and what they were created for. The reason that they're there as the reprobate is because God, before the foundation of the world, had chosen them to be vessels of dishonor, vessels of wrath, fit for destruction. That's all they were. And God has the right to do that. He takes counsel from nobody. He doesn't listen to the poor, weeping Armenian who supposedly loves God more than 
loves people more than God loves people. Well, the Bible never does say that God loves everybody. He clearly says that He loves those who He has loved from everlasting, which is His elect. And that He hateth all workers of iniquity. He hates the wicked who are not the elect. Men cannot charge or uh, God with anything, and they can't change God's purposes. But brethren, there is a complete other thing that I see back in our verse in Ecclesiastes. I may have to wait for another day to do it. I actually got off on things I didn't intend to get off on, but the Lord just led me that way. That too, there's a time and a season. There's a time and a season to. Follow, follow your thoughts. There's a time and season when God changes your thoughts. Chase rabbits. Back in Ecclesiastes, if I can ever find it. Well, for some reason, I can't get that song in Proverbs. There Ecclesiastes 3.14 I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it nor nothing taken away from it. God doeth and men shall fear before Him. So we see that God's sovereign purposes is found in this verse. But brethren, I find something else that's of utmost importance that we find out of these verses. And the comfort that we have that nothing can be put to it and nothing can be taken away. And that is that our salvation found in this verse. That too is a work of God. Matter of fact, the Bible says it's the work of God that you believe. It's the work of Christ that He obeyed, that He died and resurrected. That was the work of Christ. Those are God's works. Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. The brethren, our salvation is eternal. It's forever. Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be taken away with it. Why? Because it's God that doeth it. That's the reason why we're so dogmatic about sovereign grace. Not cheap grace, like all these other churches out there preach, that preach that Jesus loves everybody, for God so loved the world that He died for everybody, wants to give everybody a chance. All you have to do is choose Him, believe on Him, repent, believe, shake the preacher's hand, whatever. Cheap grace. That's cheap grace. That's actually not grace at all. It's no grace. It's no gospel in that. But it's not God's grace. It's not saving grace. It's not sovereign grace. If it's not sovereign grace, it's not the gospel. Because any other gospel besides sovereign grace gospel is a works gospel. No matter how minute or how big. We look at the Catholics and we say, whoa, big works gospel there. They even claim salvation is by works. They believe that. But let's just look at the other people around town, around the country, around the world. The Southern Baptists, Churches of God, the Methodists, the Presbyterians. Look at all these other churches that are out there. Look at all these other religions and nationalities, uh, uh, religions. That's out there. At the root of every one of those, 
whether they be under the Christian umbrella or whether they be under some other umbrella, whether they be likened to Christianity, whether it be the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, every one of them, at the root of every one of them, salvation is dependent upon you being preached the gospel, you receiving that gospel, repenting of your sins, believing in Christ Jesus and accepting Him into your heart, accepting Him as your Lord and say whatever, some action that you have to do in faith, then God gives you that gift. Listen, there are even sovereign grace preachers that believe that justification before God does not happen until someone believes. Therefore, their belief, while they claim it's not meritorious, we don't believe that faith is meritorious, well, you sure do talk like it is because you say that God cannot justify or declare anybody not guilty based upon Christ's work alone at the cross, but only whenever those persons exercise the gift of faith that has been given to them by God. Then God can look and say, therefore, now they're not guilty. So before they are guilty, brethren, that's that smacks in the face of, of the rest of God's word. I don't care how many Greek words you can articulate, what grammar you can articulate in the Greek or the Hebrew. I don't care what you say. It doesn't work with the rest of the tenor of Scripture. Justification, the salvation of the elect of God is by Christ alone. What He did on the cross actually did the saving, not the preaching of the Word of God, not the preaching of the Gospel, not the receiving or the hearing of the Gospel. That's not what saved anybody in the respects of they are now not guilty before God. They are now justified before God. What did that was the blood of Jesus Christ. Whether you want to, whether you want to argue on whether or not God declared that at the cross or whether He declared it before the foundation based upon what was done at the cross whenever it took place, that's fine. But if you go to the point to say that it's in time when we believe, then you've missed all of what the Bible was taught, that justification is by the faith of Christ, not by the faith of us, that has been given by Christ. By the faith of Christ, his actual, when he did it, faith. That's what saved us. And whenever it saved us, it saved us. That is the ground on which God declares men not guilty. Whether it's before the cross or after the cross, everyone who is elect of God are the justified ones because of his work. Therefore, nothing can be taken in uh, nothing can be uh, taken away from it or put to it. You can't put your works, you can't put your faith, you can't put your repentance, you can't put your preaching of the gospel or your good works or anything else, you can't put nothing to it because it's finished. It was a finished work. It was a complete work. It was totally done and declared. In fact, the Bible says the works were done before the foundation of the world and that's where I stand. I stand that God made that declaration before the foundation of the world because He chose us in Christ. In love, He chose us in Christ so that we might be before Him in love, holy and blameless. 
He chose us in Christ. Christ was the one who stood. What Christ did 2,000 something years ago on the cross, God looked at that before the foundation of the world and we were in Christ and the merits of Christ and what He had accomplished in time at that time were already finished from the foundation of the world and God declared them as such even though they not yet were. Also, Scripture. Can God declare something to be so even though it not yet is? Absolutely. The Bible says that we are seated with God right now in the heavenlies. Any of y'all been in the heavenlies yet? Nobody has. The Bible says that we are already glorified. Do we still have these old fleshly bodies? Absolutely. But what's it talking about? It's talking about who we really are. It's talking about who we really are. See, this flesh, this flesh tent, the elect, this is not who we are. We are just a pilgrim in this world. But that creation that's inside, that life that came from Him, that life that was in Him, that life that is the seed of Him, the child of God, me being a child of God, if I am His, I am a child of God. And if I am a child of God, then that means that I'm a child of God in a spiritual way, not in a fleshy way, because I am Adam's child in the flesh. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But, those in the Spirit, they come from God. Their life was hid with Him. We are His seed. And if we are His seed when we were inheritors, we were inheritors before we ever was made manifest. See, that's why nothing can be put to it and taken away is because God does it. If God takes salvation out of the hands of every man, whether it be from the preaching aspect, whether it be from the listening aspect, whether it be from the propagating aspect of anything, if God takes it out of the hands of everybody and says that's not how salvation is going to take place, why? Because I will share my glory with no one so that every man will know that salvation is of the Lord. It wasn't with, of the Lord and you. Some may say, well, <clears throat> what about all the conditions that we have to keep? What about all the works, law keeping, religious activity? Are we supposed to be zealous? Nothing can be put to it. That doesn't mean we can't be zealous. We are. The Bible says that we are zealous for good works. But that doesn't put anything to it. We desire to do the right thing. That doesn't put anything to it. And whenever we fail to do those things, that doesn't mean it takes anything away from what God's done. See, some think that the lack of met conditions and works and law-keeping and religious activities is going to take away from God's work. And it doesn't. Salvation was accomplished by the Lord with perfect love. It was accomplished with perfect obedience. It was accomplished with a perfect salvation. Look, that reminds me. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at this. I'm going to pick up on uh, the rest of this a little bit next week. Because um, there's some objections. Whenever you preach stuff like this, there's always objections. Well, then, you're just saying that there's no need to preach the gospel? You ever heard anybody say that whenever you proclaim salvation by the work of God alone? 
You mean to tell me that you can just, you and the Holy Spirit, without a preacher? You ever heard people say that? You must be a mystic. Oh, you're a, you're one of those mystics. You believe that the Holy Spirit can just out of nothing teach you something. Well, the Bible says He can, so I don't know why you can't say He can. Are you in unbelief of the Bible? But look, with Hebrews 10, look at verse uh, 14. For by the preacher and the gospel and your repentance and faith, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Is that what that reads? Now are you sure? Because that's what I hear on TV all the time. That's what I hear on the radio. I think if I went down the street, down the church, down the road, I think that's what I'd probably hear. You who began in the Spirit are now made perfect by keeping the law, by keeping good works, by doing your responsibility. Is that what that says? No, what does it say? What was the thing... For by what? One offering? Two offerings? Three offerings? Four offerings? Five offerings? How many offerings? One. By one offering, he, who is he? Was it Paul? He's the one who wrote Hebrews, right? No, it wasn't Paul. Paul was writing by the Spirit of God. Who is the he there? For by one offering, he. Christ, right? For by one offering, He hath perfected forever. How? <coughs> just until you sin the next time? Just until you read your Bible more? <coughs> He's perfected you until you quit reading your Bible too much? Or not enough? Or pray enough? Or not enough? <coughs> he hath perfected how long? Forever. What now? Maybe I'm getting this wrong. What does the word "perfected" mean? He is perfected. What does the word "perfect" mean? Help me out here. Anybody know what "perfect" means? Spotless. Anybody else? Without blemish. Without blemish. Flawless. Flawless. Without error. Without sin. Not lacking, complete. For by one offering, he hath, past tense, not is, but hath, past tense, perfected forever. Who? Them that are sanctified. Who are the ones sanctified? What does the word sanctify? Maybe we should talk about that. What does the word sanctified mean? Well, some people, the word sanctified means growing in holiness. But that's not what the word means in the Bible. In the Bible, the word sanctified means to be set apart. To be set apart. To be called apart. To be called separate. Way separate. To be called out. 
It means to, to be separated from somebody else. The word sanctified means to be set apart for the use of God. Now is that not the very definition of what the elect is? The elect were called according to the purpose of God before the foundation of the world for a purpose. They were called to be vessels of honor, for one. Not for dishonor. They were called to be vessels of mercy, not vessels of destruction. They were called out from among everybody else in Adam. So they were separated by election. Remember in 2 Timothy, who hath called us, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's called us to be holy. But how are we holy? Well, it says right here, isn't perfect another name for holy? He has called us to be holy before God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse verses. By one offering he hath made holy, perfected, completed, made sinless, made spotless, made errorless. For by one sacrifice, one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are set apart, elected, called out, separated from everybody else, the elect of God. Who is it? The elect of God are the ones who have been perfected forever. Can anything be put to it? No, it's perfect. Can anything be taken away? No, because it's forever. Plus it's perfect. If you take away, it's not perfect. That's why in Colossians it says, ye are complete in Him. Rather than our hope is in Christ, our hope is Christ if the gospel is not Christ alone, grace alone, then it's a, it's it's not it's a lie. It's a lie because that means that something has to be put to it, or something has been taken away. And God says that what He does, His works, that nothing can be put to it, nothing can be taken away from it. And salvation is of the Lord. So take from this what you will, but I pray that you'll see the greatness and the goodness and the solidarity and the and the encouragement, the comfort that comes because our God cannot change. Our God does what He wants to do and cannot lie and that He has the power to do everything that He says He's going to do and He knows what everything's going to happen and has it all in control. Alright, anybody got any questions? No, it's probably went over. Oh, not really. Anybody got any questions or comments? Alright. Lord willing, if he doesn't direct me in another direction next week, uh, we'll pick up from this, but we'll look at some objections to whenever people say, you know, things like, you know, so there's no need to preach the gospel, or are you just saying it's just me and Jesus and we don't have to have anybody else, or, you know, what's the purpose of all that? So, uh, alright, anybody? Alright, let's go. Lord, we once again come to you and we thank you so much. You are sovereign. You are glorious. You are mighty. You are all wise. 
Father, we bow before you this morning, and we just are so grateful and thankful for the comfort that you give us in this word. We're so thankful that salvation does not hinge upon the works of man or the conditions that you have set uh, at any point upon man, but that it is all of God and that nothing can be put to it and nothing can be taken away. For surely there would be no hope if it was left into the hands of sinful men. Father, Lord, I thank you that uh, you have a preacher that is successful to preach without fail the truth, not mixed with any error, and that is the Holy Spirit of God by Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we have the Word of God before that has been preserved to show us what you have revealed about yourself and about salvation and about ourselves. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have together today. We pray, Lord, that what has been said has been of the truth and not of error. And if it is of error, Father, I pray, as, as always, that you would bring correction to me by your word. And, Lord, I thank you again that you have given us opportunity to meet. And I thank you, Father, for the salvation that comes through Christ and him alone. What a privilege it is. That we have been given, undeserving, we know what a privilege it has been given to meet with the people of God and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray for our world. It is chaotic. We pray for our country. It is chaotic. And we ask, Lord, that you once again restore uh, this country, at least to its former way, where people did desire to seek after you we know that no country can be perfect no 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 place is christian uh, as far as the government is concerned but father we know that when men's hearts uh, are quickened by you whenever they are given to seek you the things of god that uh, those morality things uh, society is better for that not in any aspect of, of righteousness before you to merit anything, but Father, just for our own good, it's good to dwell with peace with other people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would restore that. Lord, that you would remove the evil uh, leaders that you have put before us for a time, I'm sure, to judge this country for the way that it is uh, blasphemed you and turned uh, in, uh, uh, in its wickedness, Lord. Uh, so I just ask that you just be with us. Help us. It's all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.